Hello folks, my name is Phil Agnew and you are listening to Nudge. Now on Nudge, I try and reveal the science behind great marketing, often by delving into the world of behaviour science and neuroscience. In previous episodes, we've looked at how the brain works, unpacking how brain injuries can make us swear more, and how brain activity is affected by music. But today I wanted to chat about some of the myths many of us in business have about the brain. Attend any conference on marketing, design or business and you'll no doubt watch a presentation that references the left and right sides of the brain and how marketers should appeal to the left side. Left brain marketing, the term coined to reference this, is preached in textbooks, courses and in talks across conferences. But does it have any scientific backing? Is it solid advice or just a myth? To help me figure that out, I am joined by Lisa Feldman Barrett. Lisa is among the top 1% of most cited scientists in the world for her revolutionary research in psychology and neuroscience. Her book, Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain, is a groundbreaking book that has revolutionized our understanding of the human mind. So there's really no one better for me to chat to to help debunk some of these myths about the brain. To kick off, here's Lisa introducing herself. The podcast I'd like to recommend today is the D2C pod, brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. The D2C pod is a podcast all about all the things direct-to-consumer. The hosts cover everything from starting, growing, and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. If you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, this is a podcast for you. To start, I'd suggest checking out episode 318, which features the CMO of Feastables. So listen to D2C pod wherever you get your podcasts. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's like trying to remember the name of someone you've just met at a networking event. I've made this mistake before, introducing a colleague to my new friend Dan, only to find out his name was actually Ian. Being personal with your customers is important, but keeping on top of all that information can be very hard. That's where HubSpot's all-new service hub comes in. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. It's got an AI-powered help desk and an AI-powered chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. Plus, it never forgets a first name. All of that can help you scale support and drive retention and revenue. That means better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com service to do more for your customers today. My name is Lisa Feldman Barrett. I am a university distinguished professor of psychology at Northeastern University, which is in Boston, Massachusetts in the US. And I also hold research appointments in radiology and psychiatry at Massachusetts General Hospital uh, and Harvard Medical School, where I hold research appointments. Lisa has studied the brain for most of her career. She's written about how emotions are formed, how the brain works with others, and if a brain could be recreated in a computer. But the very first thing Lisa looked to figure out was why we even have a brain. Why did we evolve a brain in the first place? Well, Phil, I started off wondering why we even have a brain. So what is a brain good for? I mean, it's a very expensive organ. You know, it's just 
uh, three, you know, pounds of meat basically <laughs> and between your ears. And so what's it really good for? Um, uh, it takes up 20% of your metabolic budget. And what I discovered looking into evidence um, about brain evolution is that your brain actually, brains didn't evolve to allow animals to think or feel or even see the world around them. Brains evolved to regulate bodies. So right now, uh, you and I and all our listeners have a whole drama going on inside our bodies that we are blissfully unaware of, I, I hope. Uh, otherwise, you have my deep sympathy because you, you would be so distracted uh, that you wouldn't be able to pay attention to anything uh, outside your own skin. There's a lot going on in there. There are a lot of systems. There are a lot of cells, and they all have to be coordinated, and they all have to have energy and nutrient requirements met in a timely fashion, um, in a fashion that is metabolically efficient. So it turns out metabolic efficiency is a major determinant, not just of evolution, but of physical health and mental health in, in humans. So brains evolved to regulate bodies. That's their most important, well, I can't really say that's why they evolved, but certainly one um, that's certainly one important reason. And um, it may not be the ultimate reason, although frankly, I, I think it is. Um, but you know, you can't really know for sure. But what you can say is what the brain's most important job is, and that is regulating your body. And what that means is that everything we decide, everything we do, everything we think, everything we feel, is actually in and see and hear is actually in the service of that regulation. Now, you know, you and I and our listeners probably don't experience our lives that way. We don't experience every hug we give, every insult we bear, every walk we take, every, um, you know, thing we do at work as bearing, as having anything to do with our bodies necessarily, the regulation of our bodies, but that is in fact how it works. The most important job a brain does is to regulate your body. As Lisa says, what this means is that everything we see, hear, feel is in service of this regulation. So technically, your eyes don't see and your ears don't hear and your skin doesn't feel. This is a myth. Your skin isn't really feeling anything. It's your brain that interprets that feeling and, and creates that feeling. Now, to give an example, think about the last time you washed your face. Your skin probably felt the comforting warm water. Or did it? Lisa shares in her book that your skin actually has no senses for wetness. So what's really happening here is that your brain is secretly combining several sources of information, including touch and temperature and your knowledge from past experiences, to construct a feeling of being wet. In fact, all of your sensations are computed in your brain. You don't see with your eyes, you see with your brain based on a combination of what's in your head and the sense data coming from your retinas. <laughs> this was pretty mind-blowing for me when I was reading it. However, it's not really a myth that I think business people care about. However, the lizard brain is. And here's Lisa explaining that myth. You know, there's a very, very popular idea that you could trace all the way back to uh, Plato 
the idea that we have some kind of inner ancient beast lurking in our brain that has to be controlled by some newer part of the brain that is the source of rationality. So this is the idea that, you know, you have an inner lizard brain and um, which is uh, evolved to um, uh, deal with instincts. And then layered on top of that is uh, a limbic system. Maybe, you know, you, you've heard the word amygdala, which is, you know, supposedly part of this mythical um, limbic system um, for emotions. Um, and then layered on top of that is a newly evolved cerebral cortex um, for rationality. And there are a lot of, you know, domains in the world, like, you know, in the law, especially in the Western world, you know, the law, economics, industry, marketing, um, where, um, your brain and your mind are really depicted as a battleground between your instincts and emotions on the one hand and your rationality, your rational self on the other hand, and they're in a battle for uh, control of your behavior. And when rationality wins, you are either a moral person or you are a healthy person. And when your inner beast wins, you're either immoral because you didn't try hard enough to control yourself, um, or you are sick because you can't control yourself. And the idea is that if a marketer appeals to a person's inner lizard, you know, or, or their limbic system, this kind of like ancient inner beast, that um, the marketing information or advertising information can like hijack the person's brain and kind of get them to do what they want instead of what the rational thing. That whole thing is just a myth. It's completely a myth. Brains didn't evolve this way. There is nothing structurally in the brain that um, indicates that, that it functions this way. It's just, this is our understanding of what it means to be a moral. It's a story about what it means to be a moral person and a healthy person, but it's not um, a story that's grounded in, you know, the most up-to-date neuroscience evidence. And the irony, I think, is that this story became, this story has been around for a long time. And first it was a story, you know, about the mind, and then it became a story about the brain, kind of tattooed onto the brain. Um, and it became very popular in the 1970s in, um, with a very popular book by Carl Sagan. Um, but it was also in the 1960s and 70s that the evidence against this view um, became very, very clear and certain. Um, and so if you peer into the cells of neurons, what you, I mean, into the cells of the brain, which are called neurons, and you look at the genetic makeup of those cells, you can understand that the brain didn't evolve in sedimentary layers. Um, and the only animal on this planet who has a lizard brain is a lizard. According to Lisa, the lizard brain is one of the most successful errors in all of science. It's a myth that's widely shared, but is completely wrong. See, brains don't evolve in layers like adding icing to an already baked cake. And there's no lizard brain hiding beneath your human brain. Instead, the brains of all mammals and possibly all vertebrates follow a single manufacturing plan. So when a marketing guru tells you to appeal to the lizard brain, you can call bullshit. Because as Lisa says, the only animal with a lizard brain is a lizard. 
Now let's move on to myth number three. This is the myth I encounter the most. It's the idea that the left and right side of the brains are fundamentally different and that marketers, if they want to appeal to the emotional side of consumers, need to target the left of the brain. Here's Lisa debunking this myth. Yeah, it is a myth. I mean, um, it's it's definitely clear that the left side of the brain is, for most human, most neurotypical humans, the left side of the brain is more important for language and the right side of the brain um, that, than the right side of the brain is. But that's something that develops in, in childhood as children learn to read. And it's not true in all humans, in all neurotypical humans, actually. Um, and the parts of the brain that are important for language are also important for many other things. Um, including imagination and creativity. So (laughs) my point is that for every study that shows the left side is rational and the right side is emotional or the left side is rational and uh, systematic and the right side is creative, for every study like that, you find three studies which don't show that and they show something else. I mean, I think the important thing to understand is that not every part of the brain does the same thing, but No matter what you're doing, whether you're being systematic, uh, whether you're being creative, whether you're being emotional, whether you're being rational, no matter what you're doing, you're using your whole brain. Your whole brain is involved. And there's a really good, you know, growing body of evidence to suggest that we we use our whole brains all the time. So, yeah, that's that that's also a myth. That doesn't mean that you know, marketers can't target their messages to um, one type of experience versus another, like the experience of being creative versus the experience of being rational. Or, um, But what you're targeting there is not a brain region or a brain or a brain hemisphere. Um, what you're targeting there is a brain pattern. It's like you're trying to create a pattern in that person's brain that involves all the parts Just to reiterate what Lisa said there, in general, no part of your brain is exclusively dedicated to artistic endeavours or mathematical reasoning, for example. Pretty much every action you take, every experience you have, is computed by neurons that are distributed across your brain. Now, a few functions do seem to take place in only one hemisphere, such as language ability on the left, But this lateralization develops gradually and in most but not every individual. So next time you see a slide at a marketing conference with a picture of the brain split in two and some guru talking about how they targeted the left side, you can safely ignore that part of the presentation. Now here's another myth that I've encountered. I've heard people say that humans are the most intelligent species and that bigger brains equal more cognitive ability. Now, to be honest, I believed this wholeheartedly until I read Lisa's book. Here's what Lisa has to say about brain size and intelligence. Well, I think, first of all, you know, like a statement like that, I think is really challenging because what's implicit in it is um, what it means to be intelligent, right? And, And usually what people mean by that is, anything that a human can do well, 
<laughs> right? So I guess what I would say is there are little birds, you know, with tiny little bird brains who are incredibly intelligent relative to their niche, relative to the environment that they live in. They can problem solve. They can invent tools. They can communicate with each other. They copy each other. They learn from each other. So they can do a lot of the things that we can do. Of course, they don't build civilizations, right? And they don't send other birds to the moon and they don't do things like that, but they can do other things that we can't, you know, like fly and detect weather patterns um, that we can't detect at all, except with special machinery. Um, you know, there are animals, you know, with very small brains that can grow back limbs. I mean, we can't grow back limbs. Um, and the second point to understand is that the size of your brain relative to your body size does give you certain advantages, but those advantages don't necessarily equate with, I would say, intelligence. If they did, then the most intelligent, you know, beasts on the planet, just if brain size was the the main consideration here, as opposed to the structure of the the brain or, or how the neurons are wired together. If all of those things didn't matter and only brain size mattered, then the most intelligent creatures on the planet would be elephants or whales. We really have to get away from this question of like, what's the best? What's the most? Let's get off that, that ladder because that ladder is meaningless. So for really centuries, the assumption was that really actually you could trace this all the way back to Aristotle. The assumption was, so it's, you know, millennia. The assumption was that you could place animals on a kind of a hierarchy with humans at the top. And this is called a phylogenetic scale. The idea that, you know, evolution has aimed itself at us and that we are the pinnacle of what evolution produced. That's a really, it's a very self-congratulatory way of viewing, uh, uh, you know, evolution. Another thing animals can do is regrow neurons in their brain. If their brain is damaged, they can grow new brain cells to replace old ones. This is something humans also can't do. We're great at replenishing cells across other parts of our body, but not in the brain. So the question is, why can many other animals regrow their brain cells while we can't? Well, some scientists suggest it's the price we pay for living longer lives. Now, a long life requires dependable memory. Your brain needs a way to reassemble past experiences, not just from days or weeks ago, but across the span of years. And growing new cells constantly might destroy our ability to form long memories. It's another reason why comparing our brains to animals is pointless. There's much we can't do that other species can. Just because we've invented civilization does not mean that we're the ultimate species. And the idea that we're the ultimate species is really just another myth. There's a wonderful um, book by a paleontologist named uh, Henry Gee, who is an editor at the magazine Nature. And he wrote this little book called um, The Accidental Species, I think. And I think that's what it's called. But it's a small book. I think it was published in 2014. And it's just a beautiful book. It's very snarky. I burst out laughing multiple times reading this book, enough that my husband would like rush in and go, is everything okay? Are you all right? And I'm just like trying not to pee my pants because I'm laughing so hard at like the way this guy writes. You know, but he really makes a, a set of beautiful points that are very well grounded in, in, in evolutionary uh, neuroscience that... We're not the pinnacle of anything, 
Um, we definitely have abilities that other animals don't. It's not trivial to be able to create an entire society. Most of what most of civilization, I mean, most of what we the, the our everyday lives are shaped by civilization are a bunch of made up stuff that we just we just made up functions, impose them on things, and then poof, they exist like money. You know, money, little pieces of paper or plastic or gold, diamonds, barley, salt, big rocks in the ocean that can't be moved. You know, none of these things inherently have value. They only have value because we all agree that they have value to be traded for material goods. And if we withdrew that consent, they wouldn't have value anymore. Hence the mortgage crisis, right, of, you know, the early 2000s. So humans can do things like that. And that's pretty miraculous. But, you know, carrying 50 times your own body weight, which is what an ant can do, that's pretty miraculous. And growing back limbs is, is pretty miraculous. And changing your color to match your environment, you know, not your clothes, not changing your clothes, but literally your skin color, that's pretty miraculous. And so the world is filled with miraculous creatures and we are part of nature and we're miraculous too um, in our own way. But it's not an issue of like better or worse or what, you know, what, who's most, who's got the most intelligence and who has the least intelligence. Those kinds of questions are, are just not scientifically maybe the best questions to ask I would, is what I, what I would say. Let's recap the myths so far. So the first is that you don't feel with your skin, you feel with your brain. This is why bed sheets in a five-star hotel feel softer than the exact same sheets in a dingy motel. The second myth was the lizard brain. You can't create marketing that appeals to your deep embedded lizard brain because the lizard brain doesn't exist. The third myth was around left brain marketing and how that is pretty much bogus. And the fourth myth we debunked is that larger brains are smarter. Finally, we heard how human brains aren't the ultimate brains and that there are lots of things it can't do, including growing back new cells. Now, I'll leave you with one more myth that stuck with me after reading Lisa's book. See, I thought that our brains could store memories, sort of like a video recorder. But our brains can't. That's a myth. Your brain doesn't store memories like files on a computer. It reconstructs memories on demand. And Lisa doesn't even call this remembering because it's really not. She says it's more like assembling. Each time a memory is assembled, it could be built by different neurons. And it's also influenced by your current situation. So this is why eyewitness testimonials can be unreliable. Why market research is often wrong. It's why the feedback one customer gives is often not the same as feedback from someone in the same demographic and why football fans of opposing teams often come away from rival games with drastically different views. Okay, folks, that is all we have time for today, and thank you so much for listening to this episode. And of course, thank you to Lisa for joining me on the show. Her book, Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain, I think is a must-read, and I've left a link in the show notes to pick up a copy, so please do go and pick it up. Now, Lisa will be back on Nudge in a few weeks where we'll discuss what's more important, nature or nurture. As always, if you want to hear that episode, then sign up to the Nudge newsletter, the link to which is in the show notes. Last week, over 100 people signed up for the newsletter. Why? 
Well, because alongside creating the show, I also send out these nudge tips. Now, nudge tips are quick examples of nudges that I've seen in the wild that you could use to improve your work. If you sign up, you can read about the best pub slogan in London, the beer tagline that people can't forget, and KFC's most successful Facebook ad. Again, the link to that is in the show notes, or you can sign up at nudgepodcast.com. As always, I'm on Twitter at P underscore Agnew, that's A-G-N-E-W, so reach out on there if you have any feedback, and thank you again for listening. <laughs>